long I've been on ya. Thank you for listening to the Daily Sports Report on 88.3 FM Ann Arbor, where the puck drops here. Let's get lost tonight. You could be my black Kate Moss tonight. Play secretary on the ball tonight. And you don't give a f what they all say, right? Awesome, the Christian and Christian Dior. Damn, they don't make them like this anymore. I ask, cause I'm not sure. Do anybody make real bad when the presence of greatness? Cause right now, that has forsaken us. You should be honored by my lateness. That I would even show up to this thing. So go ahead, go nuts, go ace. Especially in my pastel on my plate Act like you can't tell who made this new gospel Homie, take six and take this, haters Wayne Kramer, you're listening to WCBN in Ann Arbor A square, y'all This is Jake and Jake at WBCN John Kidd. That's WCBN. WBCN. CCCBN. I'm from Ann Arbor, Michigan, man. Ann Arbor! Yeah, I was there during the 60s when the universe meant something. All right, so hi guys out there in Ann Arbor. Now we're going to... I mean, WBCN. WCBN. WCBN. Yep. WCBN. FFM. Ann Arbor. WCB. Yeah. Yep. Down there. WCB. Yep. WCB. Yep. WCB. Right Jake on. and Jake. I'm on the movie. Yeah. Okay. Right on. I got T shirts, nine bumper sticks. Shaky Jake. An Ann Arbor legend. Well, welcome to another Ann Arbor legend. <laughs> uh, it always feels good to wear the shoes of Newt Gingrich for every now and then, but welcome to another edition of Gray Matters, the weekly news and media talk show. My name is Dick Whaley, and uh, Jim Dwyer has uh, school obligations this evening, so he'll be back next week. Um, I guess we can quickly dispose of the two major elections. Um, I actually was going to talk a little bit about the interesting events in uh, regarding the Dutch government that uh, apparently is being reorganized, because I know Jim has a special uh, interest in the Dutch government. But uh, the French uh, election uh, turned out to be very interesting uh, because Sarkozy is sort of embattled um, for a variety of reasons. Um, but uh, he did surprisingly well, finishing second. And, of course, what makes the French elections interesting is that they have a sort of a, a runoff. Um, what's interesting about European politics compared to American politics is that American politics is basically a two-party system with uh, minor uh, involvement of third parties in our system. Third parties historically in America have brought about ideas that have eventually been incorporated uh, into one of the major parties. That's the basic thing that you sort of learn in uh, introductory history here at the University of Michigan and perhaps uh, in high school, uh, the role of third parties. And uh, Sarkozy finished second in the uh, French elections with 27.1% of the vote. Uh, Francois Hollande, which I believe is how you pronounce his name, that's what I heard on the BBC last night, finished first. He's the socialist, basically the party of um, Francois Mitterrand. Uh, he finished with 28.5%. 
And Marie Le Pen, a far right wing uh, candidate whose uh, main agenda is basically uh, reminiscent of the uh, modern Republican Party here in the United States, a huge focus on immigration and uh, welfare benefits, that sort of thing, government spending. The left-wing party, the communists-slash-socialists-slash-greens, because um, it's, a, I believe, a kind of a loose coalition, got 11.1%. And the center party, the centrist party, uh, used to be known as the Gaullists. Uh, they have actually had some prime ministers over the years, um, including, I think, Valerie Destang was a basically a centrist back in the 70s. Uh, they got 9.1%, and the early uh, polls from the runoff show that Olin has about a 12-point lead. So for Sarkozy to win this election, he's pretty much going to have to get almost all of the Marie Le Pen uh, party voters. She's the daughter of the uh, original founder of this right-wing movement in France. And uh, a good chunk of the centrist uh, party, because presumably the... Um, major component of the left-wing party will end up voting for Olin at the end of the day. So sort of doing the loose numbers, it looks like a uh, it's going to be a close election despite this 12-point lead. And what's interesting is that they have a compressed sort of two-week schedule. They have uh, now, I think, in France televised debates, and uh, we'll see what happens. But uh, I, think by, I think the date of the uh, final election in France is May 6th. So we'll see what happens in that election. The reason that this this is an important uh, election, I don't think it, it reflects on America much, uh, though there are some interesting similarities between what's going on in France and what's going on here in the United States in the year 2012. But the more relevant thing may have something to do with the uh, Euro, Euro crisis and what will happen uh, in the future, because France is uh, one of the s more solvent uh, European countries. And France and Germany have the power, uh, both in terms of their GDP, their financial resources, and their populations, to um, control how the Euro uh, bailouts are, are going to uh, continue to operate uh, in Greece and other countries that are beginning to have trouble, uh, like uh, Portugal. Spain, um, Ireland, and uh, probably eventually Italy. Italy, of course, will be the country that will cause the most difficulty. Spain had a, a right, center-right candidate, sort of similar to Sarkozy, win uh, the elections in Spain. I think those were back in November. And uh, he's struggling with the austerity uh, programs in Spain. Lots of uh, strikes and very high unemployment uh, and this, of course, has beleaguered uh, most European countries that are dealing with this sort of uh, a similar problem that, that we have here in the United States. We basically have an excess of uh, available workers for the amount of jobs we need relative to the uh, GDP. And uh, with modern technology uh, eliminating jobs, uh, in many cases, uh, with, i.e., productivity going up. That's the positive side of it. In theory, uh, if productivity goes up, wages go up. But ma it seems like many uh, countries in Europe are in very similar situation uh, economically to the United States with very, very high numbers of young people unemployed. And uh, America may rapidly become a society of uh, 
people with cell phones but without jobs. And how long that is sustainable is anybody's guess. So uh, keep an eye on the upcoming French elections uh, for uh, its significance, both uh, possibly as a reflection of uh, what will happen in the United States and uh, the economic uh, situation regarding the stability of the euro and the central bank there. It's interesting, of course, that uh, originally the socialist candidate that was uh, favored to be um, the the candidate uh, was not Francois Hollande, but uh, um, um, Strauss-Kahn, who, of course, got implicated in a uh, very strange scandal here in the United States and continues to be beleaguered with rumors of uh, all sorts of stuff. And given the fact that uh, we have a Secret Service scandal that I don't think has anything to do with Barack Obama, uh, but could perhaps be a, uh, uh, a disinformation campaign operated by intelligence agencies. It's very interesting that uh, as the scandal uh, of the Secret Service here in the United States, it seems more and more that the uh, uh, military and uh, Secret Service were involved in this. And how and why prostitutes were procured in Colombia on such short notice is uh, anybody's guess, but... Uh, the uh, Americans need to realize that the United States has had a very active role in the war on drugs in Colombia for many, many years. Billions of dollars of economic aid has been, and military aid has been flowing to Colombia uh, to deal with the uh, drug problem and um, uh, the f problem with the FARC. So uh, the United States has uh, close ties historically to the Colombian government for uh, all sorts of shady reasons. And it's rather unfortunate that the recent Latin summit uh, didn't go into this uh, with much uh, detail uh, because the uh, media is, of course, fascinated with sex scandals. What's new? Anyway, uh, last week I was briefly uh, condemning Mitt Romney for this rather uh, superficial focus on uh, jobs lost by women since Barack Obama has took office. And it's interesting to note that the latest edition of The Nation magazine, a particularly good issue, by the way, um, Juan Cole, a professor here extraordinaire at the University of Michigan, has an interesting article about covert operations uh, in the... Um, the world in which our military is currently operating actively, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Iraq, etc., the Near East, the Middle East, you name it. That's a highly recommended um, article. There is also a detailed article about death of a salesman uh, that's been revived on Broadway by uh, the outstanding actor Philip Seymour Hoffman. Death of a Salesman, of course, is the most famous play that Arthur Miller ever wrote. And uh, Arthur Miller, I read this as a piece of trivia, a former grad of the uh, University of Michigan, uh, briefly mar mar uh, married to Marilyn Monroe. Uh, I don't know what he ever uh, wrote about that, but that would have been uh, interesting reading, to say the least. Um, probably kept quiet on it because he was uh, peripherally involved in the blacklist scandal. He did not name names and was held in contempt of Congress, and his conviction was eventually overturned, uh, properly so, in my opinion. But there is an article about uh, Willie Loman 
Willie Loman's Secret, I'll just read the uh, title of it. It says, Death of a Salesman Speaks to Our, t- uh, our Time on the Failure of Competitive Capitalism. That's by Lee Siegel. Also, in this edition, Laura Flanders has an article. And I also wanted to emphasize the um, William Greider article, their economic uh, senior editor, um, about the Federal Reserve. There's uh, on the cover, by the way, is The Boss. So there's a good article by Bruce, uh, by Eric Alterman about Bruce Sting- Springsteen. But at the lead editorial at the beginning of this issue that I uh, got off on a tangent on, because this is a particularly good single edition of The Nation magazine, the April 30th, 2012 edition. Five poems, by the way, featured in this uh, individual publication by the recently deceased Adrian Rich, uh, one of the more important feminist poets of uh, American literature in the the, uh, 20th century. She died recently, so that's in there as well. I believe she contributed to the nation over her uh, long career. But in any event, regarding the uh, reason that I brought this whole thing up to begin with, is uh, they have in their lead editorial this uh, interesting statement regarding the job losses under uh, uh, Barack Obama uh, with respect to women. They write, as Mike Consul and Bryce uh, Covert have documented on Nation.com, 11 states where the GOP seized control in 2010 were responsible for 40% of the state and local public sector job losses in 2011. That's what the Republicans are campaigning on. Now Mitt Romney is trying to blame the fiscal policies in the Republican states on Barack Obama. Remarkable stuff since the stimulus package passed in 2009 directly aided the states preventing those layoffs from occurring in 2009, which is exactly why the recession didn't occur. In today's uh, New York Times, uh, Paul Krugman, a Nobel laureate in economics, and I think one of the outstanding columnists of our uh, generation, uh, he's been uh, on the New York Times editorial page for many, many years now, writes this. Uh, and, of course, his uh, piece is entitled The Amnesia Candidate, in which he excoriates Mitt Romney for uh, relying on Americans to, quote, uh, have a amnesia regarding his uh, statements and record over the past uh several years. Krugman writes, this is especially true if you focus on private sector jobs. Overall employment in the Obama administration has been held back by mass layoffs of school teachers and other state and local employees. But private sector employment has recovered almost all of the ground lost in the administration's early months. That compares favorably in the Bush era. As of March 2004, Private employment was still two and a half million jobs below its level when Bush took office. Oh, and where have those mass layoffs of school teachers been taking place, Krugman asks, largely in states controlled by the GOP. Seventy percent of public job losses have either been in Texas or in states where Republicans recently took control. 
I mentioned Texas, of course, because their primary is coming up. Mitt Romney will do well tomorrow. Uh, but the end of the territory that Mitt Romney is going to do really well in uh, ends tomorrow. Uh, the pundits are sort of saying that the race is over. And for all practical purposes, it is. But don't be surprised if Romney has much more difficulty wrapping up this nomination uh, than you might think. Recall that in Virginia, uh, where Newt Gingrich and Rick Santorum were not even on the ballot, Ron Paul got 40% of the vote. Ron Paul did better in Virginia than any other state. That is a reflection of the continuing anti-Mitt Romney sentiment that's within the Republican Party still. And I suspect that um, I, I have no knowledge of exactly of how uh, uh, aggressively Newt Gingrich is going to pursue his remaining uh, presidency because, as we noted last week, he's gone from being the big fig to the little date. But Ron Paul is going to hang in there, and Ron Paul may do much better than people, uh, the pundits, think in some of the states that are upcoming in May, like Indiana, Kentucky, Texas. Uh, and perhaps even California. So it'll be interesting to see how long it actually takes Mitt Romney to um, uh, wrap things up. But don't be surprised if it takes longer than the mainstream media thinks, because they're not looking at the anti-Mitt numbers that clearly. And for uh, Mitt Romney to be sort of dragging uh, Marco Rubio around... Uh, I don't know if he has a nose ring, but I'm sure he's on a leash at this point um, as a prospective vice presidential candidate. Yikes. That's pretty scary. I don't understand how Marco Rubio helps um, Mitt Romney in um, Pennsylvania other than to maybe inject a little bit of enthusiasm into the, the campaign appearances. But Romney is often, in comparison, when he's on stage with some of these uh, prospective vice presidential candidates, uh, looks awkward, to say the least. So we'll continue to focus on that and continue to address some of the continuing misstatements and mischaracterizations of Mitt Romney, don't call me Dim Mitley. Well, over the weekend, uh, in one of the interesting obits... Uh, in a couple of years, I would uh, like to focus a little bit of the remaining show on the death and passing of Charles Colson. Uh, this is a very interesting character from the Watergate years. He was a special counselor to Richard Nixon, who joined the Nixon administration sometime uh, into the term. I don't think he was, uh, he certainly was never confirmed by the Senate. Uh, he operated, by the way, and became a, uh, quote, lifelong Nixon fanatic, at, uh, fanatic when he met Nixon in 1956, who was vice president at the time. Um, and uh, he went to Washington to work as a, quote, administrative assistant to Senator Leverett uh, Saltonstall at the time, and thereafter became a Nixon fanatic. Well, he played a major role in the Watergate scandal. And the obituary, of course, there's a couple of things about the obituary that I found very interesting. 
Charles Colson passed away on Saturday. And Sunday's New York Times had uh, the, the obituary for uh, Charles Colson, uh, written by Tim Weiner, who's a national security specialist for that newspaper. And uh, the headline is, Charles Colson, 80, Watergate felon reborn as evangelical leader dies. Well, in today's New York Times, they reprint the obituary, I believe, word for word. I sort of did a brief scan of this, and I didn't see any changes other than they changed one photograph. Uh, Two photographs, I should say. Uh, They kept the photograph of uh, Charles Colson meeting John Paul II in 1998 and uh, changed uh, one of the photographs uh, of Daniel Ellsberg. Uh, He was in the Watergate felon reborn as evangelical leader headline. But in today's New York Times, the um, uh, lead obituary headline says, Charles Colson, Nixon's political enforcer, dies at 80. So one wonders if the complaints came from the evangelical community or uh, people that didn't like the characterization of Watergate felon. Uh, but indeed, uh, Charles Colson was a Watergate felon. It's interesting to note that the, um, his rehabilitation, of course, started following his uh, prison sentence. He got involved in uh, basically the, the, uh, he declared that he was born again after he came out of prison. And uh, he also claimed that he had a spiritual crisis. Um, he was often described as a hatchet man. And he uh, served in the Marines, uh, which I think is interesting, uh, to, as a reflection of his uh, 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 personality. But the obituary notes that while leaving for work in 1973, leaving the White House, and fearing that he might wind up in jail, Charles Colson got into his car and found himself in the grip of a spiritual crisis that led to his conversion. The, this so-called White House hatchet man, ex-Marine captain, was crying so hard um, he uh, remembered. I sat there for a long time that night, uh, deeply uh, convinced of my own sin. And he noted that he had a hard time getting the keys into the ignition. Ah, if only we'd had that on camera. But uh, I am less sympathetic to Charles Colson. Charles Colson was, uh, of course, famous for saying that he would run over his own grandmother for Richard Nixon. Uh, rest assured, folks, your grandmothers are now safe. Charles Colson uh, is six feet under. But Charles Colson, despite the fact that he did have this revival as an evangelical leader, and one can, can commend him for this, saying that, okay, he realized that he was a sinner. Uh, to his credit, he pled guilty. Uh, there was no trial involving Charles Colson because a trial involving Charles Colson might have been a, a pretty scary stuff. Because he was involved in a lot of major shenanigans under the the scandal that's loosely called Watergate. But, of course, Watergate, as we've noted down here in Gray Matters over these many years, is really a scandal about abuse of power, a scandal about unbelievable paranoia by Richard Nixon of the United States. And Charles Colson was uh, a major, what I would call, sycophant of... Uh, um, Richard Nixon. He was an orchestrator of the dirty tricks. 
He's the one that hired um, E. Howard Hunt. Um, I don't know that he was as much of a political enforcer as an investigator, and he frequently appealed in the Watergate tapes that have been revealed, and by the way, there's thousands of tapes that have not been revealed. He frequently uh, appealed to Nixon's darker side. Um, he allegedly read uh, the chapter on Alger Hiss 14 times, which is a fascinating um, act of loyalty. And he frequently um, would use the Hiss case uh, to indicate both his loyalty and his desire to um, get rough. Um, whenever Nixon used profanity, words like SOB, uh, Colson frequently pipes up, that's right, that sort of thing. Uh, so his, his role in the Watergate uh, scandal is, is fascinating, to say the least. And, of course, the great writer on Nixon, um, who has worked uh, tirelessly over these many years, to uh, declassify the Nixon tapes, uh, Stanley Cutler, uh, professor of history at the University of Wisconsin for many years, uh, his book uh, entitled Abuse of Power, The New Nixon Tapes uh, came out in late uh, 1997. This was an updated version of some of the tapes that previously the public had been aware of. And it's just fascinating to read some of this stuff uh, in the book. Of course, the uh, smoking gun tape is in the, uh, in, in the book. Uh, we have the John Dean cancer on the presidency conversation um, on uh, pages 247 through 249 that I might get to. But I'd like to give you a kind of a flavor of uh, Charles Colson. Uh, on August 12, 1971, Colson and Nixon met in the uh, Oval Office and gives uh, Nick, uh, uh, Nixon a, quote, warm endorsement of E. Howard Hunt, who, of course, was known to Nixon. Uh, there's a recent book that just came out that Jim and I have both read. I didn't bring down my notes on this book because I'm sure we can revisit this uh, with the uh, 40th anniversary of Watergate approaching. Um, but it's an amazing book about Nixon's sort of deranged personality that led to a lot of these problems. Uh, I would argue that Nixon had these problems throughout his career. Uh, on the positive side regarding Richard Nixon, he, he did um, study history. He read books. He was a uh, well-versed in public affairs, uh, basically a political and historical fanatic. And his presidency had some successes. But I've always argued that his foreign policy um, failures have been understated and not noted quite effectively. He was also a very, very studious um, person uh, regarding American politics. He knew how the system worked, but he also knew how to manipulate the system. And what's fascinating about the downfall of Richard Nixon is that while Watergate is, is uh, unraveling and he's doing everything he can to cover it up, he keeps talking about the problem of the cover-up. He says that the cover-up is worse than the crime. He keeps referring to the his case, interestingly enough, something that I'm a 
bit of an expert on throughout the Watergate tapes. And it's interesting that in this conversation he has with Colson on the 12th of August, 1971, the plumbers had just been organized, and they had been organized to, uh, quote, stop leaks. Um, and their main focus in 71 was their, their obsession with the uh, Pentagon Papers. And the Supreme Court had ruled um, that summer that the New York Times could publish the Pentagon Papers Daniel Ellsberg, of course, was the leaker and uh, in, in the Pentagon Papers case. And for a brief period of time, the New York Times was enjoined uh, by federal courts from publishing uh, the, the uh, excerpts from the uh, uh, Pentagon Papers. But that was overturned by the Supreme Court, I think, on June 30th of 1971. Anyway, Colson in this August 12th, 71 edition... Uh, um, conversation in the Oval Office shortly after lunch in which Richard Nixon undoubtedly had a dollop of cottage cheese on top of a pineapple ring. This was apparently his his lunchtime fare. Uh, he was on a diet, so to speak. Um, Colson tells Nixon, Hunt is a first-rate analyst who has spent his whole life in subversive warfare. Thank God we know they're on our side who has been an admirer of ours and yours since the Alger Hiss case. He's been going through this, digging up names, peoples, incidents, and events. We can build one hell of a case, and given the right forum, the forum is the Congress, that, 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 Nixon interrupts, the right, the right case, of course, is really to get our Democratic friends talking about the damn thing, Pentagon Papers, and defending and running away from it. And fighting each other about it. That's their problem. That's not ours. Colson interjects, I can just, gosh, I just, you have to have a mind about it. Because I'm bri- I've been briefing Ehrlichman on it today on the investigative side. Crow is working on that too. So you have in mind, we need those hearings. Let's keep this goddamn thing. I want this inflamed. And this gives you a spirit of how Nixon was uh, trying to agitate his, uh, his men, all the president's men, uh, regarding um, keeping the case inflamed. He, while Nixon is trying to stop leaks, he justifies this on national security grounds, Nixon is also creating leaks. And this is a theme throughout the Watergate tapes. He's interested in leaking information to people in the media that are favorable to his cause and congressmen that are favorable to his cause. And, of course, one of the incidents, one of the most famous incidents that um, um, Colson was, was implicated in um, was the, uh, the Arthur Bremer uh uh, business uh, on the 15th of uh, March, uh, excuse me, 15th of May, 1972. So we're almost on the 50, uh, 40th anniversary of that. Uh, Wallace is a, uh, there's an assassination attempt on George Wallace, who at the time, by the way, was running for the Democratic nomination. It's fascinating to learn, by the way, uh, as we uh, approach the seven o'clock hour. I just wanted to let you know you are listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Yazoo City Calling will be coming up shortly, that on the 15th of May, um, Nixon had orchestrated and forced Wallace to run as a Democrat by using the IRS to go after his brother, uh, 
said he would, uh, if he didn't run as a Democrat and ran as an independent like he did in 68, uh, he would have the IRS investigate his brother.